This episode of Recommended is sponsored in part by Cubhouse, an imprint of Lion Forge and publisher of the Worm World Saga Volume 1, The Journey Begins. The Worm World Saga is written and illustrated by Daniel Lesky. This gorgeous fantasy epic follows Jonas, a young boy from our human world, whose love of daydreaming and doodling gets him into trouble at school. During a summer at his grandmother's house in the countryside, Jonas spends his days dreaming about battling trolls, goblins, and dragons. But when his dad discovers he's been cheating on his homework, Jonas needs more than daydreams to escape being grounded all summer. When one of his doodles comes to life and opens a portal to the fantasy realm in his grandmother's attic, Jonas will face his biggest adventure yet. When the portal closes behind him, Jonas stumbles into an alternate universe and must find another way home. He begins a journey through the strange and mesmerizing land of Wormworld. Along the way, he meets Rhea, who becomes his guardian. But there are many things that Rhea is not telling Jonas, and Wormworld is not peaceful. Jonas must learn to navigate a place beyond his wildest fantasies, discover who is friend or foe, and try to find his way back home. Daniel Lesky started working on the Wormworld saga in 2010. When the first chapter went viral online, he quit his job, created more chapters, and eventually published a six-volume saga of Jonas's adventures throughout Wormworld. Lion Forge is now publishing the Wormworld Saga for the first time in English through their Cubhouse imprint. The Wormworld Saga Volume 1, The Journey Begins, is out now wherever great books are sold. This is Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. In today's episode, Rebecca Roanhorse picked Buckskin Cocaine by Erica Wirth, and Finn Murphy picked 1984 by George Orwell. Up first is Rebecca Roanhorse. She is a speculative fiction writer and Nebula, Hugo, and Sturgeon Award finalist. She's also a 2017 Campbell Award finalist for Best New Science Fiction and Fantasy Writer. Her novel Trail of Lightning is the first book in the Sixth World series, followed by Storm of Locusts in 2019. She lives in northern New Mexico with her husband, daughter, and Pug. I'm going to talk about Buckskin Cocaine by Erica Wurst. So this book is about the Native American up-and-coming film scene in Santa Fe. So it's sort of this cast of characters, all of them sort of striving in some way to make their name in the film industry. And they're all Native American. It's just about 100 pages, so it's really a novella. And it's not linear. It's just a series of sort of vignettes or sort of character studies picking from like this group of people that are all part of this film. Of course, they're all pretty self-obsessed and they're in the film industry, so that's not surprising. So you have like directors, models, dancers, you even have like wannabes and hangers on, you know, things like that. And they're all trying to to make their name or, or, you know, get someone's attention or just sort of the way that they interact with each other really reveals like a lot about their character and, of course, about, you know, how they feel about themselves and about all the people around them. This is the awesome thing about the book, and this is what you don't get to see a lot, is this is contemporary. This is now. I know so many of the places in this book that Erica talks about. I know the Hotel Santa Fe, where they all hang out. I know the the Evangelos, the bar where they all end up. IAIA, the school that a lot of them come in and out of, the arts, the Indian art school here. And so they're all sort of in town. The majority of the book takes place where they're all in town for this, the Red Stick Film Festival. This is so familiar to me. And of course, all the characters are fictional, but they're so real. And I'm like, oh, I know that guy. And maybe I don't know specifically that guy, but I know his type. And I think I sat next to him at a screening or I'm sort of tangentially part of that 
because uh, my husband is an artist too in the native art scene. And so I'm familiar with a lot of these people and, and the way that Worst captures them just seems so true and like so real that it's nice because these are not Native American characters that you get to see a lot. So normally what you see in like literature is A, it's in the 1800s, which is depressing. <laughs> but, um, and B, they're usually on the reservation and it's sort of this tragic tale of poverty or, you know, whatever their story is. But all these characters are pretty middle class. They might have grown up on the reservation, but clearly they've moved past that. Well, in a certain sense, certainly they're haunted by what it is that they grew up with and what they've experienced. But you also have a character who grew up in Denver and becomes a, a ballerina in uh, Paris. And then, you know, you have um, and a lot of the characters sort of struggle with it, what it means to be traditional in the native sense. So knowing your language, knowing your people, rejecting these sort of Western ideals of what it is to live. And then also wanting to be part of the film industry, wanting to succeed and to try to divorce themselves from that native narrative of poverty and reservation life. And as she says, feathers and buckskin. Some of them want to put that away, and then some of them want to capitalize on that. So all the characters are complicated. There's no right or wrong sort of clear issues for them. They're all sort of struggling through trying to make the best of their lives as they can. And, and a lot of them fail. Like, it's, it's a pretty dark book. I think my favorite character is probably Olivia James, and that's the ballerina. I mean, she grew, grows up in Denver raised by a single dad who is a janitor at a hospital. And she grows up dancing, sort of traditional dancing, powwow dancing, that sort of thing. And then when she's six, she discovers ballet. And she absolutely falls in love with it. And what she really loves about it is the rigor, the demands of it, and that not everyone can do it. She can do it, and she can conquer it. She can force her body, she can force her will into this thing that makes her better than everyone else. She wants to escape the confines of the sort of native identity that she feels like she's going to get pushed into. And she sees all the girls around her sort of getting pregnant when they're young and being stuck and never going anywhere. And she doesn't want that. She wants the world, right? And so she sees ballet also as her way out of that. But what she sacrifices for that, what she's willing to give up is tragic. And I think her story, while identifying with a lot of like what she says, story really speaks to me on a personal level, but it's also brutal. So and there's a whole passage where she's had this falling out with her older lover and, and he's accusing her of these monstrous things. And, and she's thinking to herself, maybe I am monstrous, you know, or not even a maybe I am. And she says things like I'm something evil, like something that has emerged out of a cave and I'm living off my own pain and anger and I don't even care. And she sort of comes back to that and she says, I'm something born without a mother and where that will lead her and what she will be willing, you know, to sacrifice for that or how that set her adrift in the world. And so I love that character. I think that character is fascinating. And I want to tell you how her story ends. You'll have to read it and find out. Erica Burt <laughs> writes um, in this sort of free form, nonlinear style, at least for this book. And I think it just makes the characters open up in a way that's just fascinating to me, like how much she can get out of the characters in so few words, really, because it's only the book is only about 100 pages long. I mean, the form really works for this. You know, it really works for her. And she really works the form. She has another character, 
uh, named Candy, <laughs> fittingly enough, who is her whole sort of, um, she's an actress, a model. She lives in New York. She's in her early 20s, which she says over and over again. It's a sort of her mantra to herself to justify the vapid horror of her life. And I think she makes a great contrast to the Olivia James ballerina character and that Olivia seems very conscious of the choices she's making, whereas Candy just seems to be barreling through this life that's on the surface looks beautiful. And she talks about how all these, these gorgeous photos of her all over the Internet, that sort of thing. And, and, and that's supposed to add meaning to her life. And she keeps telling herself, this is meaning. This is meaning. Look, this is me and I have meaning. But clearly, she has no meaning. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not the way. She doesn't inherently have no meaning, but she's not going to find her meaning in the way that she thinks she is. She doesn't give you easy people to love. She gives you these difficult, complicated people. And, and there's no noble savages. There's no uh, single-tiered Indians looking at the environment. Like There's none of that. This is the life. These are the people that I know. When you say Native American, these are the people I think of. And so that's refreshing. Thanks again to Rebecca Roanhorse for joining us and recommending Buckskin Cocaine by Erica Wirth. Her novel Trail of Lightning, published by Saga Press, will be available on June 26th, and you can pre-order it now. You can follow her on Twitter at RoanhorseBex. Recommended is also sponsored by Amazon Publishing and All the Little Lights by Jamie McGuire. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jamie McGuire comes All the Little Lights, a haunting and beautiful tale of first love that starts young but runs deep. Shy but charming Elliot helps Catherine forget her loneliness, but she's crushed when he suddenly leaves town. When he finally returns, Elliot is determined to win back Catherine's friendship and her heart. But is love enough when everything buried comes to light? Jamie McGuire is the number one New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Walking Disaster, The Maddox Brothers Series, The Providence Trilogy, and more. Jamie was the first independent author in history to strike a print deal with retail giant Walmart. Her writing has been translated into 50 languages. To learn more about Jamie, visit www.jamiemcguire.com or follow her on Twitter at Jamie McGuire. To learn more about the book, visit www.amazon.com backslash all the little lights. Our next guest is Finn Murphy, author of The Long Haul. More than 30 years ago, Finn Murphy dropped out of college to become a long haul trucker. Since then, he's covered more than a million miles, packing, loading, and hauling people's belongings all over America. In the long haul, Murphy offers a trucker's eye view of America on the move. I picked 1984 by George Orwell. I read it as a freshman in high school. I grew up in a very structured Irish Catholic household, and I have seven brothers and sisters, and I went to parochial schools, and my whole life was very, very regimented. And I was always sort of confused about the why regimentation was so attractive to authorities and what they were trying to do. And in the case of my family, I mean, it was practical in terms of getting eight children dressed and off to school. I could understand that part. But then going to school and, and just seeing these arbitrary rules and things was always sort of in the back of my mind that there was something, something not connecting about it. And when I read 1984, I mean, one of the things I love about the book is it's, it's accessibility to sophisticated ideas about freedom, the individual, and society. And it put off this big light in the back of my head. Oh, that's why. Basically, 
large organizations, authoritarian organizations, the trick is to subsume the individual in favor of some sort of collective greater good. And that might be, in many cases, there is a collective greater good. But in many cases, people are, uh, authoritarians are looking towards a goal that has nothing to do with my welfare or the welfare of society, but the welfare of the state or, the, in the case of 1984, the party and the permanent power of the party and the tools that they use to gain control, maintain control, is perfectly done in this book. And not only is it just about totalitarian ideas, it's also a great story, a great plot, and it's a wonderful love story. One of my pet peeves about, about this book being assigned when you're 14 years old, there's nothing wrong with it being assigned in high school. For me, it's a book, I reread this book. I mean, it's on my nightstand all the time. I just reread it again. I read it every year. I think it's a book that everybody should read at least twice, once when you're 14 and then when you're an adult. Because like any great novel, you're going to pull different things out depending on where you are in your own life stage. There's two major themes that stick out for me. It's how the state affects the individual and or how the state uses the individual to subsume individuality on the, on the one hand. And then the other one is why the state, or in this case the party in 1984, what's the motive for keeping a heel on the throat of an entire population? And he goes into motive and he talks about, we just want power for its own sake, and we want power to make people suffer and to keep things, take things away from you and keep them away from you. We're not pretending that this is going to be some sort of collective utopia where everybody's going to be happy. We don't care. We really want you to suffer. And bad ideas like that attract bad people. And here's how I would explain it, or here's how I learned it from 1984, is that if you look at the radical left on a horizontal plane, and then the radical right is the far side of the, that, the other end of the horizontal plane, I think what Orwell's trying to explain to us is that this is not a horizontal line. This is actually a circle. And at the bottom of the circle, your radical leftist is going to be a complete collectivist, and at the far right your radical rightist is going to be a nationalist. And regardless of whatever collectivism, nationalism, whatever kind of term you want to use, where you end up in the bottom of that circle is a totalitarian state. And that's why it's so dangerous. And when is the moment where you're supposed to dig in your heels? And for me, as a radical individualist, every day you dig in your heels. But when do you know, you know, when is it, that's just as a person, you know, when do you dig in your heels and say to your society and become an activist and say, wait a minute, this is enough of this stuff. And when do you recognize, and I think this is your question, when do you recognize that it's gone too far? You know, there were plenty of Jews in 1933 that left Germany when you could leave. And then there were plenty that left in 1938 when it was hard to leave. And then, you know, we all know what happened. So we enter the book in the situation where the state is already completely established. And there was no hope for Winston. Even Winston knew when he started his diary in the very beginning of the book, he knew that it was never going to be read by anybody, and he knew he was going to be caught by the thought police, and he knew he was going to be tortured. He didn't know that he would eventually betray Julia, 
because he didn't understand, you know, he's Winston's really, you know, he's an everyman. He's just a, he's a government bureaucrat. He's, he's not nothing special except that he actually believed in objective reality and remembered things and, uh, thought two and two equal four. I don't believe there was any hope for that. And if Orwell had lived and this, here's an idea, what would be a great book is to write a book about how that state got itself established. It's, it, it still totally scares me. And part of it is I like to proselytize about, about this book because I want everyone to read it and to understand it because it doesn't have the Hollywood ending because this actually can happen in, in many places has happened and in some places is still happening. And there's some basic epistemological points here that we need to keep in mind. And the individual reigns supreme. Objective reality exists. And, you know, essentially, if you accept the fact that I have a right to live or to exist, then by implication, you have a right to exist. Everything that's good that comes out of society, if you keep that in mind, then it all follows. But if you take that away, there's, you've already started down the slippery slope. I think what he would be surprised is that the march of totalitarianism actually that wave is sort of receding or or let's not because actually i don't believe that it's receding i think it hasn't gained the traction that i think he might have expected and i think that's very hopeful for all of us and that's why i tell everybody <laughs> you need to read this book because be prepared and practice freedom every day Thanks again to Finn Murphy for joining us and recommending 1984 by George Orwell. His memoir, The Long Haul, published by W.W. Norton, will be available in paperback on June 5th. You can find him online at finnmurphy.net. Next week on Recommended, one author talks about how directing a Shakespeare play inspired her writing career. It allowed me to finally make the connection that, you know, I've loved classics since I was a child. I've loved writing since I was a child. Maybe I should work with the myths creatively. It led directly, working with Shakespeare's version of the myths led me directly into my writing career. Thanks again to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you heard, please do take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear your feedback, and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find show notes at bookriot.com slash recommended, and you can email us at recommended at bookriot.com. <laughs>